podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Wisdom and Cricket's podcast series, The Greatest T20. So far, we've been Chris Gale, the T20's greatest batsman, Mumbai Indians its greatest team, and Nassi's Malinga its greatest fast bowler. Today, we're here to pick something a bit more nebulous, perhaps, leaving scope for plenty of discussion, T20's greatest influencer. I'm your host, Ben Gardner, subbing in for Yaz Rana today, and with me is Crick Wizards' Freddie Wilde, and Sky Sports Cricket Pundit, singer-songwriter, and former England batsman, Mark Butcher. Butch, how are you doing? Very good. Yeah, very good. Nice to see, uh, well, nice to see anybody, really. Uh, so first of all, I think we should define the terms of the debate. Freddie, what do we mean by an influencer? Are we talking Chris Hughes from Love Island that, you know, to launch the World Cup? What's going on? <laughs> um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, and you're right, it is a little bit nebulous, I suppose. And that's what will make for an interesting debate. But I think we're sort of looking at guys who have, uh, or girls, who have changed the format. People who have either on or off the pitch, the actions that they have done have left a sort of lasting legacy on T20. Um, and as I said, that could be players um, on the pitch or it could be administrators off the pitch. I think probably today we'll end up talking about um, both those things. Hmm. It makes sense to me to begin right from the very start, since when the format was in its early stages, it would have been kind of much easier to sort of shape and mould it. And in a way, kind of the ECB and Stuart Robertson, who was the ECB's marketing manager back in 2003, had a huge impact just by having the idea for the format and kind of all that time ago. But you were still a professional player then, although it wasn't until 2004 that you played your first game. But what was the reaction sort of from inside the, the county game like at the time? Um, I think when the, when the idea first came about, I mean, remember that, that as county players and even sort of international players as, as well, it, feel, it felt as though there wasn't enough room or time to, do, to play anything else. You know, there, there were... There were still 16, 16 championship games. You'd have the, the knockout cup at the beginning of the year. You'd have another, um, you know, another, another one-day tournament as well. Um, and it felt like the, the calendar was packed. And, t- and 2020 cricket was a game that a lot of guys had played in sort of evening leagues and stuff in club cricket. And it just felt like it was a bit of a, a, bit of a nonsense, really. Um, until the first game dropped, um, I think, Surrey played at, at Imber Court, at the, the old Met Police Ground near, um, near Hampton Court um, for their first match in 2003. And the crowd was just unbelievable. Um, and, and everybody from that moment sort of got it. You know, it, was, it felt a little bit like an exhibition game, I suppose. But, um, you know, just the, the, the numbers of people coming in to watch it sort of meant that it was, that it was something different and something um, more exciting than had gone before. Adam Hollyoak, I mean, we're talking about people who have, inf- have influenced the game. Adam Hollyoak, Surrey won it the first year, 2003, right? And there was a discussion in the dressing room about, you know, how is this going to work? How are we going to play this, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a lot of talk about sort of running twos and saving runs in the field and, um, you know, pushing hard and all that kind of stuff. And Smokey just went, no, nah. said, the team who hits the ball out of the park the most will win this. And that was basically his philosophy was hit more sixes and you will win. And, and he was right then and he's still right now. Uh, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and sort of that understanding, that clarity of, of what the game would be and what, what it would be like was, was, was there right from the very beginning from him. I mean, it's, it's, you know, sorry, I've not won it since the first year when everybody else was still trying to figure out what was going on. But I think that, was, um, that always stuck with me, that conversation. Um, and you know, I, I, I mean, Surrey are also uh, apologies for this, but Surrey also kind of embedded in it from my point of view, because they'd been trying to get something akin to the the IPL off the ground, um, sort of behind closed doors in the background before the, the 2003 All County um, uh, tournament came about. You know, they'd sort of mooted the idea of having a smaller amount of teams big grounds only you know it was kind of ipl mark mark one what, what's your thing 
Freddie's 2.0, isn't it? So the, the IPL before before the IPL was even conceived. Um, and I suppose the thing that's amusing about that now is that we, you know, the hundred has, has become the thing on top of a, of, a, of a format that is already and has already been the most successful version of the game ever, arguably. Um, so, you know, despite inventing T20 cricket in inverted commas, we, we, we seem to be behind the eight ball again, which is, which is something that, that, that we tend to do here in England, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as well, just looking back at um, you know, the, the tournament's inception, and um, it's amazing how close it was to not actually going through. Um, so I think the vote of the counties, anything that's passed like that by the ECB has to be voted for by the counties and the MCC. Um, I think the vote was um, 11-7 with one um, abstention. Um, and, 11, and I think they only just got that across the line after some sort of like 11th hour um, bargaining and persuading with the county chairman. These were guys who um, were often um, on the wrong side of 60. Uh, they were older, older blokes who didn't maybe, who weren't maybe sort of um, aware of the need for the tournament or what it might be able to bring. Um, and I think Stuart Robertson and the ECB's team, who were sort of obviously behind the idea, had to do a lot of um, a lot of last-minute bargaining to get it across the line. And it's kind of amazing to think what the game might have looked like were it not for that vote going through. And we're talking about influencers, and you wonder whether something like this would have cropped up somewhere in the world. I expect, given cricket's sort of tendency to reinvent itself, Butch, there you're talking about the hundred coming up. You know, I think it probably something would have probably happened. I mean. You talk about um, an IPL sort of being discussed before it happened. I mean, actually, and we'll probably touch on this um, shortly, but Lalit Modi, who was behind the original IPL, actually went to the BCCI um, in the late 90s, I think, or maybe early 2000s, with a similar idea around city-based tournament. It was going to be a 50-over um, competition, but that sort of showed, I suppose, there was an appetite for innovation and for change in the game of cricket. Yeah. Um, but still, it is amazing to think if that vote hadn't gone through, how things could have been very different. It might not have been 20 over cricket um, and all kinds of different things may have unfolded. So, you know, when we are talking about influencers, it is, that, that obviously is a very early fork in the road. And the ECB um, getting it on, you know, getting it on and staging it was a huge moment. And I think, Butch, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were lucky that summer there was a lot of very good weather um, yeah. for the sort of two weeks that it happened. And it meant loads of people came in and, um, yeah, I mean, what, what was it sort of like? What was the atmosphere and environment like around those early games? You mentioned big crowds. I mean, it must have been a big change for a lot of county players. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was everything changed really, um, because you, you could you could no longer you could no longer kind of hide a little bit. You know, you were you were out there in front of in front of crowds that you would only see if you got to a Lord's final, perhaps, or if you were playing international cricket. Um, and the and the sort of the, the the parameters around what was what was possible in terms of scoring rates etc just just accelerated from the moment that it came about and the game looks the way that it does because of because of T20 cricket not because of we were talking about this before you before you signed on not because of you know of, of larger looking bats and things it, 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 T20 cricket reducing the amount of time. Um, and expanding the amount of freedom that, that batsmen had, you know, taking away the um, taking away the, the sort of the, the jeopardy about losing wickets, I suppose, changed the game in in ways that nothing had done had done so before. Nothing, um, and the players kind of cottoned onto that pretty quickly. I think, you know, at least they did post two thousand and three. You know, Surrey might have had the the, the thought earlier about. That it was going to be all about donging the ball out of the park, um, but pretty soon everybody else caught up, you know. And, and the game, I, I think the game looks better in all formats because of it. I really do. I mean, you know, you can argue argue the toss about, you know, batting techniques and being able to bat long periods of time, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in Test match cricket. But the the upshot has been that you have more results in Test matches. Arguably, you have more exciting games. Um, uh, and, and all of that is because of T20 cricket. So I mean, it was one heck of a it was one heck of a leap, really. I suppose, given how conservative the game has been. Um, but but look what it's done. Uh, you know, and, and I, that kind of I, just before you go on, you know, I'll lead that into the sort of the idea of the hundred. 
Um, in the the one thing that I don't understand about the, about the hundred or the need for the hundred is that you already have this great format that is already crick that is cricket. You know, the, the the great thing about T Twenty was you didn't have to change anything. The game's still it's still the same game. You just made it shorter. Um, there were no gimmicks required beyond the fact that the, the game was was so much shorter. It was half as short as the next, you know, the Sunday League, whatever it was. Um, the hundred to me doesn't seem different enough in terms of its in terms of its length, but it is different in terms of changing changing the rules and changing the the, the numbers of ball and over. And I kind of and, I, and I'm confused as to why you would make a game that to people who don't understand cricket is already quite confusing, um, make it confusing to the people who do understand it as well. <laughs> uh, I suppose the one thing I was thinking with T20 in its early years as well is that it was, um, and this is probably, you'll be able to shed some light on this, but I'm not sure how seriously even the people in players involved viewed it or how much it was sort of entertainment. And I was looking back at, so Stuart Robinson, I guess, is kind of who we're discussing here as a possible candidate. He gave an interview not that long ago where he said rules like a golden over was something that he was quite keen on where runs were worth double and those sort of like, I guess, gimmicks, basically. And mm. obviously, it's not, it is basically just obviously cricket, but in 20 overs, and there aren't any really that many extra rules. But did you sort of feel that it was just an effort to entertain people rather than proper cricket? And I guess the next question will be after that is, when did it sort of start becoming a proper sport that people viewed as having all these sort of uh, uh, little details and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, Freddie might know, that might sort of have, have more of a historical record on it, but my, my anecdotal feeling was that after, the, after year one, you know, I, I think the players all, it was a bit of a giggle, a bit of a laugh, but as soon as you, as soon as, <laughs> it's, it's human nature, as soon as you see that there are lots and lots of people watching what you're doing, you know, it becomes serious. Right, that's that. That's that whole thing about dance. Like nobody's nobody's watching. You, everyone fling their arms about and stuff when they, when you're in the room by yourself. But you put a few people in front of it, and suddenly you need to know what you're doing, right? Otherwise, you don't do it. So I think I think it, it became serious pretty quickly. I mean, if you look at the the start of the the IPL, for example, the sort of the, the IPL realised that they had to they had to market the game. They had to sort of use. The, the names that the game had and used the sort of as much razzmatazz as they possibly could. It's like, you know, we are telling you that this thing is unmissable. We are telling you that this has all of the greatest personalities in the sport, da, 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 in order to, in order to ramp up the, uh, the hype to the point where you couldn't ignore it. And that's the thing that the IPL has done better than anywhere else. Um, and so the players themselves might've thought, you know, well, we're getting paid a decent whack. You know, there's parties every night. The game itself isn't that serious, but the spectacle is is huge, and that's kind of, uh, and that's kind of the way that the IPL wor worked. And by the time you got to 2010-11, it, it was it was unbelievably serious, you know. And and now there are no parties after the games. It's a proper, it's a serious, serious business. Um, and you know, with the T20 in England, it it took a it took a season or so. And, and the great thing about it was, is it leveled it leveled everything up. It, there were only we had two divisions in the championship, whatever. There were only re realistically three or four clubs at any time that could win the championship. But with T Twenty, everybody could win it. Um, and I, and I think actually, again, guys, we're sort of having a, an, another slight dig at the ideas of two divisions of T Twenty or whatever it might be. T Twenty is a great leveler in, in that anybody out of the eighteen counties could realistically win the thing. Um, and it's quite egalitarian in that respect. Yeah, I, th I think, um, yeah, I mean, virtually what you said there, charms with a lot of, you know, the people I've spoken to around those early days, um, you know, it, it did sort of give everyone an opportunity. I think Leicester in particular were a side who obviously, yeah, I think you, you, Surrey and Leicester were the two early dominant teams, really, um, mm. in the sort of first three or four years. And they come at it from completely different ends of the sort of financial spectrum, really, don't they? I mean, you've got Surrey who are... You know, have always been one of the strongest counties, both financially and on the pitch, whereas Leicester, who haven't been really. And I think um, the likes of Jeremy Snape and Paul Nixon, when I spoke to them about it before, they recognised this was a chance to, to win something because not everyone else was taking it seriously. There was sort of a lag in how quickly some teams understood it. 
Um, and it's interesting, in fact, how Surrey and Leicester took slightly different methods to it. Surrey, you, you know, you're, you're spot on. That, that comment from Adam Holyoke is amazing, really, isn't it? Given how much people talk and think about strategizing in C20. And it can be, you know, and it is, I think, in many ways, a very strategic format. But it does boil down at the end to something as simple as that. Um, you know, and it's something that the West Indies side have showed over the last little decade or so. It's just hit the most sixes and you're going to win. Um, mm. Leicester were slightly different. I don't think that that doesn't chime true, but Le- Leicester were a bit more of uh, an innovative team, I think. Um, they had some sort of unusual players, guys like Jeremy Snape, who bowled about 30 miles an hour, um, mm. Paul Nixon with his reverse sweeps, etc. They, and they, they, they were quite they had a very flexible batting order. And they came in it basically with sort of tried to be as funky and as different as possible, and it worked for them. Um, and that's quite yeah. nice, I think. In the early years, we had two dominant teams with two quite different attitudes. Sorry, with a lot of star players, um, of which you were one, Butch, um, hitting, hitting lots of sixes. And then, <laughs> and then Leicester, Leicester innovating and being different. Um, so I guess, you know, you're right. I think it took a, a couple of years for everyone to catch up. But they were the early teams who, who took it seriously. Um, and they were the ones who were successful. So I guess that sort of, there was a lesson in that. <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned the, the West Indies there, because I guess the next sort of chapter in the T20 story is, in a way, is it going around the world. And uh, one of the first big money events, really, was the, the Stanford T20. And in a way, Alan Stanford is your traditional influencer. You know, he knew how to make an entrance. He you know, landing on the nursery ground in a, in a helicopter with his glass case full of cash, offering, you know, throwing throw all this money around. And then obviously not long after, he was sentenced to 110 years in prison for fraud. And it's instant the ECB might maybe rather forget. But do you think in the Caribbean did he actually have sort of a, a positive impact? Is, is there a positive Stanford legacy there? We, we spoke to Dan Ganga for this podcast two episodes ago when we were talking about the greatest T20 team, and it's something that often is, is sort of overlooked with regards to Stanford because of the way that it ended. As you said, he ended up in jail, um, and it was all a bit of a disaster, ostensibly anyway. But he did, and uh, you know, this is something we spoke about. So if you want to listen to in more detail, go back to episode two of this of this show. Um, but he brought a lot of good things to the Caribbean. He professionalised the system in many ways. He incentivised the players to be good at T20 because they could win so much money if they were good at it. Um, and for a region that was, um, you know, uh, relatively at least poor in the sort of cricket ecosystem, his injection of cash and of, of as I said, incentives um, left a lasting legacy. Other people's cash. Well, other people's cash. That's very true. Yeah, and some players. I think some players. Some players are still waiting for their full payment from Stanford, and they're probably never going to get it. Um, but but the the idea of taking T20 seriously obviously left a lasting legacy on on the region, um, and you know that that was sort of um, borne out with them winning two World Cups uh, and being so effective in the T20 format. Uh, but also Stanford fits into this narrative as well with the IPL in that. Um, obviously, English players weren't able to go to the IPL because it clashed with, with um, the English season. So that's when the ECB jumped into bed with Soren Stanford. And we talk about influencers. And you're right, he was a sort of the, the typical influencer. And, and looking back at that, it sort of encapsulates how kind of crazy those early years were of T20. You talk about crazy on the pitch with the, you know, and everyone sort of working out how to play, but off the pitch as well. The world was turned upside down pretty much. Um, you know, the, the cricket economy was suddenly uh, or suddenly realised you could make money from domestic cricket. And Stanford was someone who tapped into that. Uh, the IPL also tapped into that. And I think between probably 2006-07 and 2011-12, when you had the Champions League being played as well, mm. cricket was crazier then sort of administratively than it ever had been maybe. Um, it certainly seems to have calmed down now. Um, but yeah, in terms of influence and legacy and, and, and what it represented, that Stanford period was was pretty bonkers. <laughs> yeah. And in terms of that sort of uh, like craziness and kind of anything can happen nature, I mean, looking back now, the IPL is such an institution that it feels like it could always have happened or, or was always going to happen. But mm. people credit that T20 World Cup win as sort of galvanising, I guess, the the drive for it. Is, was, was that win really as significant as that if, if Ms. Brohack hadn't played that scoop, might there be no IPL or is that too simplistic? Um, no, I, I, think, I think the IPL would always have happened. I mean, did, what year, Freddie, what, when was the ICL? When did, when did the sort of the... That was, so that was formed in, two, that was launched in 2007 around a similar time, just before the T20 World Cup. Yeah. Um, so, and, so, so yes, the you're idea, right. I mean, the you're, idea, you're, you're, 
be that it was a reaction. The IPL was partly a reaction to that as well. Yeah, yeah. So the, so the idea was already there, you know. It was just a case of who was going to win the power struggle to kind of to grab all of the TV rights and the, and the, and the advertising to, to be able to put the thing on. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, India is kind of ripe for, for that, I think, be- simply because, simply because I don't think they have the same difficulty in terms of, um, in terms of, of making new things happen. You know, there are how, how many first class sort of cricket teams, states or whatever are there in India? There are, there are, you know, 40. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and yet there wasn't this argument that they, you couldn't possibly condense all of those down into eight eight teams to do an IPL. You know, it was like this is happening. This is what we are going to do. This is this is what it's going to look like. Um, and as I said before, we are going to we are going to um, you know to to market this thing as something that cannot be missed. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're living under a rock. You will know if you're living in the up in the, in the Bengal, you know, the Bay of Bengal area, if you're in anywhere near Calcutta, within three, four, five, six hundred miles, you are going to know that Calcutta are playing against um, Bangalore tonight because the city is going to be turned purple. You know, it's kind of, they, they just went absolutely all out. And, that, and, that, and therein lies the success of it. Um, they weren't kind of looking at the reasons why, why, why they shouldn't do it. Um, yeah. So it was always going. It was it was always going to succeed. It just kind of you know perhaps it took a little bit longer to get off the ground because I think that there were there were problems in terms of there were problems in terms of the product. I thought thought that it, when it all boils down to it is that it still needs to be good. You know the the cricket still needs to be good. And they had you know there were a few years whereby you kind of looked at it and thought well you know there's a lot of players playing there are way past their best and. You're not, you know, the fielding is abysmal, and da, da, da. you know, if you, if you, if it's a circus on the field, people won't stick with it. But they, I think they, they got the balance almost perfect between sort of needing that sort of injection of, of big net of star names, etc., and razzmatazz. And then just as it was starting to reach a tipping point, it was like, this is now we've got, we've got the base of this. Now let's let's make it serious on the field as well. And that's and that's how it's ended up being the, the sort of the perfect product. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're completely right. The IPL would have happened anyway, were it not for the 2007 World Cup. And you're right to mention the ICL. And, and just for listeners who aren't familiar with it, essentially the Indian Cricket League was a, another T20 competition. It was launched by um, partly by a guy who owned a TV channel Z TV in India. Who basically he realised what um, the BCI and what other um, boards around the world realised was that T20 was a great product. And they decided to basically try and sign up loads of players, almost Kerry Packer style, to a competition. They were going to play it. It was going to be played in, in one city in Chandigarh in India. And all these matches were on TV. And it was a, a, a big show was made of it. And lots of quite famous players signed up. I mean, Brian Lara is probably the most famous player who signed up to that. Um, and as a result, those guys were, were banned from playing in the IPL. Um, so this tournament was set up at a similar time to the, the T20 World Cup. India obviously then go on and win the T20 World Cup in 2007 in, in, you know, almost the dream final, India against Pakistan. It goes down to a, a thrilling last over um, and India win it, which gives a sort of sense of momentum behind T20 cricket because amazingly, in fact, the BCCI were very reluctant to even send India to that original T20 World Cup and they actually sent basically a second string squad. Um, you know, the likes of Tendulkar and Ganguly weren't there. It was a sort of younger horde of players, which is kind of symbolic in a way. Um, so that sort of helped India fall in love with it. But at the same time as that T20 World Cup, and I think a lot of the key announcements happened, in fact, during the tournament, the BCCI said, we're setting up our own city-based T20 competition. They didn't want ZTV and Subhash Chandra, the, the guy who owned that channel, to basically sort of steal a march on, on, on um, T20 cricket. They recognised, you know, maybe, maybe we've, we've not been as in favour of this format as we should have been in the past, but we've got to now because our control on cricket in India is going to be lost. Um, and so they moved quite quickly and, and things moved rapidly in that 2007-8 winter. As I said, India won the T20 World Cup. Then the IPL auction happened. The teams were sold for millions. Star Sports picked up the rights. Well, I think Sony picked up the Yeah, Star Sports picked up the rights, sorry. Uh, the, the, um, the IPL kicked off um, and the rest kind of is history. Um, but I think one or two key characters in that when we're talking about influencers, one is MS Dhoni um, in terms of 
his sort of role in that growth, if you like, or in terms of how it was perceived. Um, he was the captain of that Indian side and then obviously went on to be the most expensive signing in the first IPL auction. Um, and I think if you're looking for a character who sort of represents the rise of T20, um, Dhoni is, is that. Um, and then from an administrative perspective, we've mentioned him, but Lalit Modi, he was uh, the sort of brains behind the IPL. Um, and obviously there are a lot of people involved in that. Um, there's a sports marketing firm called IMG who run a lot of events around the world who are also massive in that. Um, but, but Modi and IMG work very closely together to essentially mm. do what B Butch said, which is create this amazing product of like combining Bollywood and cricket, which I think you, you're completely right to map that sort of course for the first three or four years. It was just here are loads of celebrities, here's some cricket and loads of money, and India's going to fall in love with it. And then, yeah, it became more serious. But that, the sort of inspiration behind those simple early years of, of as I said, Bollywood and cricket was it's simple, but, but also quite clever. Um, and and Very, which, you know, more, more than you know, you've experienced that in the early years and you were involved in, in a lot of covering the IPL um, with Sky, sort of um, seeing it firsthand, the effect of, of, of that combination on a sort of young, an impressionable India is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, incredible. I mean, it, it, good, good to mention IMG, actually, because the, the logistics of putting this thing on, the IPL, IPL on every year, I mean, pretty much it, when it, <laughs> it comes down to, um, you get to within the last week, you know, before the tournament's due to start and you're not quite sure what the fixture list looks like. I mean, it's just <laughs> incredible. It's, it's incredible. And, and they pull it off every year. You know, the... the, the the um, the CEOs, the people from IMG who kind of run the whole thing, don't sleep. It's like it's eight weeks and they don't sleep. They travel, they fly, they're on flights every day, every morning, night. It's just an it's the most incredible operation, and it works somehow. Um, it's a, it's it's pretty amazing. And and, and as well, I think um, once the IPL then starts, a, a, a massive moment, and people rightly again a little bit like the World T Twenty, a lot is pinned on this moment, but. The opening night and McCullum's century, again, was a, a, on the field, a perfect moment to sort of propel the league forward. And again, if it wasn't for that innings, the IPL probably still would have worked because the product was so good. Um, but Modi's spoken about before how he, after McCullum played that innings, went to the, to the hotel that night and just said, thank you, Brendan, for doing what you've done because, you know, you, you've, you've given us the perfect start. And I think it would have worked anyway, but... People didn't really know what to expect. This was so new. Um, so much money had been thrown at it that if it had been a sort of dud first game, there was, I suppose, a small risk that it might have just plateaued and not worked out. But, you know, you, you create a, a, a perfect situation like that. McCullum's there. He's on, what, like north of like six or seven balls and then just goes absolutely bananas for the next hour and a half. And, um, and they end up with a huge total and it's the perfect first night. And it didn't matter that he was playing for the away team. Um, you know, everyone loved it and it was a huge hit. And from that point on, um, yeah, the rest is history and, and the IPL has gone on to sort of reshape the global calendar. Yeah, well, that leads quite nicely on to, because I feel like we've, we've discussed a lot of uh, quite top-level administrative things so far. But there's a, I mean, that, that was as well as an important innings from, a, from you know, an influence point of view. It's just a brilliant a T20 cricket innings. I mean, you talked about the impact that still, has, still ranks very highly just across all any of the format has had. And we should talk in depth really about the things that have influenced the playing style of T20 cricket as well as how it's sort of been, you know, pro pro proliferated around the globe. Um, and you, so, Freddie, you called the West Indies the T20's first dynasty on a previous pod. How much did, I guess, that team, the players in that team, influence kind of, I guess, the template of how to approach being successful in the format? Well, I mean, they took what Butch mentioned about hitting sixes and sort of just popularised it um, you know, in terms of in a batting perspective. I mean, there are some, I've just written down here some players who could easily be, well, who have definitely been influencers um, from the West Indies. Chris Gale, obviously, uh, Sunil Narayan, Andre Russell, Karan Pollard, Darren Sammy, Samuel Badri, all for, 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 for slightly different reasons. But just to have that many players from one single region is, is testament partly to what we, we spoke about with regards to Stanford. Um, and how he sort of uh, made T20 cricket uh, an event and something to be taken seriously. And so they did and then became very good at it. Uh, yeah, Miguel, you mentioned Darren Bravo there. Bravo, oh, Bravo too. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, 
missed the leading wicket taker in T20 history, which sort of sums it up. You know that that they they produce an amazing array of talent, and and I think critically, not only are these guys good, but they've often done things differently. So just to you know quickly whiz through it, Gale six hitting, for example, is the thing he's clearly done. Narine, from a sort of mystery spin perspective, bowled a lot flatter, a lot faster than spinners do. Samuel Badri bowled in the power play. Pollard and Russell, these are guys built like sort of boxers, really. And then Darren Sammy as, as a captain, um, as a leader as well, as someone who's led them to two T20 World Cups. And then Dwayne Bravo with, with slower balls and Yorkers at the death. They've done things slightly differently. And I think that's where, when you're talking about influencers, um, left, left the mark on the game and kind of changing how it's played. Um, is that fair to say, Butch? Yeah, I mean, I reckon so. I mean, you know, the, funnily enough, though, a lot of those guys were kind of test match 50 over players beforehand weren't they you know they're kind of so they've they've adapted and and perhaps um, used the experience that they that they that they'd gained by by playing longer forms of, of cricket married that with their with their undoubted physical attributes um, you know you mentioned the size of guys like Pollard and Sammy etc etc the imposing nature of them and just the, the ability to hit the ball as far as possible um, and, and you've got the you've got the perfect sort of perfect marriage of all of all things really. Um, you know, athleticism is is just is is such an important part of the T Twenty game, whether that be you know, brute strength or um, Bravo with his sort of you know being being able to sort of hit Yorkers, hit guys on the head, bowl brilliant slow balls, brilliant in the field, dancing to celebrate all of that stuff. You know, um, it's all part of a, of a great entertainment package and. I think you, there's two arguments, I suppose, in terms of influencing, because some some might say in West India, in the Caribbean, in the region, that those guys have been have been an influence for the worse, you know, because Test match cricket has struggled, etc. But you could look at it and say they've kept the game alive, you know, they've kind of they've kept the game in the forefront um, in the region. And and perhaps because of it that there is a there is a, a slight resurgence in kind of like the interest in the other formats too. You know the the team that's come over here have got a um, you know they're very inexperienced for this Test match series, but there is a you know there is a feeling that that, that the guys are taking taking the game seriously in all formats again. And and I and I think you can lay that on the back of some of these fellas who have had their problems with West Indies boards. Um, but have kept the game alive um, in in that region, and and I think they've yeah. been they've been unbelievable for for T Twenty cricket around the world. You know, you talk about Gale and his six hitting. Gale is the man, and he said it himself. He's the man that kind of if you want if you want people to to, to take your your format your new tournament seriously, then you've got to sign me. You know, I'm I'm the man. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, that well, might not be the case nowadays, but it, but it certainly has been for the last the last fifteen years. Yeah, and we've talked there a little bit about their influence on the pitch, but I mean, just the way that they've, um, uh, and you sort of touched on it there, but the way that they've become sort of freelancers is also a huge thing. Uh, and many players around the world, not least from South Africa, but all over the world now, sort of followed in that, that the footsteps, I suppose, of those players. And it's partly to do with the economics of, of cricket in the Caribbean and how much they're paid by, by, by the West Indies cricket board. But um, guys like Gale, um, and also, I think probably more critically, Narayan and Pollard, because they were maybe less, they weren't so much stars before. Gale had, you know, Gale scored two Test match triple centuries. He's a, he's a, um, you know, he's a freakish player in all formats. Um, they weren't that, and they sort of went and said, you know, what well, we can make a career without international cricket, and they have, and that's kind of indicative of maybe the way the game's going as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's quite hard to pin a single player when we're trying to find an influencer decide one of them. I mean, Gale is probably the sort of my most iconic of those guys. Um, but for me, I think Narayan and Pollard stand out in, in respect to the fact that they they didn't have to rely on their sort of international career in quite the same way. Um, they did obviously have played in international cricket, but Pollard was sold in the IPL for close to a million when he played, I think he had an ODI average of seven, um, which kind of sums up um, the, the new world, really. Um, and then other other players that are worth mentioning, and, and it's interesting that they come from um, another sort of uh, financially slightly worse off area of the world, and I think therefore prioritise T20 and maybe coaching was different. But um, guys like Lasith Malinga, um, Ajanta Mendis, uh, and Tilakratni Dilshan, three Sri Lankans stand out all as having innovated massively on the pitch. 
And again, that might come back to, as I said, the fact that in these countries there's maybe slightly different coaching structures, but like in England, when you're brought up, you're sort of told to play in certain ways. Mm. Um, Malenko obviously bowled with this ridiculous round arm action. Mendes, who created the Karen ball, which Narine then, um, I think, took on. And, and I think he credits Mendes with that. So we're talking about Narine as an influence, so we can't look past Mendes. And then obviously there's Dilshan's Dilscoop, which is probably the craziest shot in the game. <laughs> yeah. Are you able to talk through just like the madness of what playing? Because I mean, we've seen Brendan McCullum play this famous ramps against uh, uh, Sean Tate when he was bowling as quick as anyone ever had. What, like, because I mean, not obviously most people listening to this podcast won't have even faced bowling anywhere near that quick. What is it like to do that, to face it and then basically redirect it at your own head? No, I've got no bloody idea. There's no chance I'd have ever done that. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, it's lunacy enough that you're going to do this. You kind of can, you can still get out of the way if you don't get the ball that you're after. You know what I mean? And they don't do this, that positioning does not happen on release of the ball. They've made up their mind they're going to do it a long way before. Um, and I think if you do end up getting chalked up trying to do that, it's because you've made a late call. Um, you know, it's just, I still find it incredible watching them do it. I really do. Because as you say, that, that you get hit, hit at that sort of speed, um, you know, and you're, you're, you're putting yourself in, the, in line with it, really. Um, you're, you're going down and you're probably not getting up. So, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, bravery, the bravery involved is incredible. But, you know, the, there's so much audacity in terms of what, what batsmen do um, nowadays. And, it's, again, it's all because of T20 cricket. And, and the, the format itself is, is an influencer. I mean, that's, that's the great thing about it, is that it has changed the game more than anything has changed it in, a, in the 100 years previous. T20 has made, made the game accelerate to, a, to an extent that nothing else has. Uh, another player as well, from an English perspective, that's probably worth mentioning is KP. Um, there, there are a few in, in, you know, English players who, again, on and off the pitch, who have left such an, an influence on the game. Um, I mean, ob the obvious um, thing when we're talking about on the pitch, like we did with Dilshan, is, is the shot, the switch hit. Um, I mean, David Warner, someone who's also played it, I think he was playing it at a similarish time. Peterson was ahead of him in playing it, I think, just about. But Warner's, Warner's made it um, maybe even more, or become more famous playing it. Um, but that was a huge moment. But I think more his influence is about the relationship that occurred with the ECB, which ties into the stuff with Stanford. Um, for, for all the other countries around the world, Letting their players go in the IPL made sense because the calendar didn't clash. For Peterson, he sort of encapsulated the issue, if you like, of old v new. Um, mm. The county game was sort of the oldest and traditional form of the game, if you like. It was the, the way that the English season always started. And Peterson was there saying, you know, I, I, why should I bother be playing in that? I, I, I don't need to play in that. I need to go over to India. And I think that... Um, argument encapsulated, I suppose, the, the sort of the tensions of the age really in sort of 08, 2012 kind of period. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that he was as sort of bullish as he was in pushing for it um, was ultimately vindicated amazingly by the way that England have changed their attitude to it. And it's, it's remarkable that Strauss, who was the captain during that period, was the guy who then encouraged everyone to go and play in the IPL. And obviously England won the World Cup last year. That wasn't just because of the IPL, but you know, Joffre Archer, for example, was someone who bowled that over in the Super Over. He was able to be picked for England because he played in the IPL and they recognised that that was a high standard of cricket and a pressure environment. Um, and, you know, in a way, they owe some of that to KP, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, without, without any doubt. I mean, the, you know, the, the, I, I'll never forget watching him switch it merrily for six, you know, left-handed over... Over long on, he did it. Who else did he do it to? New Zealander. Well, Scott Styris, which is a little bit less Scotty impressive. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it was still, it was still jaw dropping at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, he was incredible. Player of the series, player of the tournament when England won the when, won the uh, won the T Twenty World Cup in the Caribbean. Um, you know, he was one of the greatest players that, that's ever ever worn an English shirt. Um, KP. But you're right. The um, you know. The, he was, and you could see it at the time, he was absolutely right in what he was saying. But the problem was is that, he, that he was asking to miss test matches, wasn't he? That was the problem. You know, England would play the, the, two, the two early tests against, you know, poor old Bangladesh or Sri Lanka coming over in May, early June, whatever it was. And he was basically asking to, to miss England matches. 
which which on the face of it sounds you know sacrilegious the interesting thing was for me was that that the coach at the time was taking time off you know the coaches needed a rest you know i remember andy flower missing a series because he needed a break but players who were playing in all three formats weren't allowed to do the same and okay kp wasn't going for a break it wasn't a break he wanted to go over and and earn a pot of cash don't blame him and also to to pit himself against the the very best in 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 the sort of the, the newest format of the game and you know as you said strauss was strauss in the end when he became um, when poacher became gamekeeper he, he decided that it was a very good idea to expose his players to to that sort of environment um but by then it was too late for for kevin um uh, i mean he's in terms of english cricket i think he's probably one of the biggest influences that that, that there has been um in in all formats of the game to be honest with you let alone t20 um and the fact that people still to this day, love or hate him is kind of testament to, to, to who he is as a bloke and how great he was as a player. Yeah. I guess, I guess we've touched on some, some of the influences in terms of batting and spin bowling, but perhaps not pace bowling quite so much. I guess the key thing in T20 cricket with pace bowling has been the, the slower ball. And in particular, because I mean, obviously you had slower ball bowlers back, you know, in the 19, in the early years of the 20th century, you had Bill Lockwood bowling slower balls. But I guess it's the, the number and type of slower balls that bowlers, that all bowlers have now, uh, that's, that's remarkable. Who, who are the key figures in, uh, in that sort of revolution? Well, I mean, one, one, one like, worth talking to Butch about is Jay Dernbach at Surrey. I mean, he was someone who did it quite early. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair. I mean, it's, it's very fair. Um, but I mean, everybody did. I mean, Adam Holyoke himself was kind of, you know, slower ball bowler, death bowler extraordinaire in the sort of like the, in the early, late, late 90s, early 2000s in, in T20 cricket, the split finger, um, split finger slower ball. Um, you know, Malinga, we've already talked about Malinga, Bravo, it's like the usual suspects really. Um, and this, you know, the, the key to it is, I think, you'd, I think to try, for the, for the viewers, the idea of the slow ball obviously is you know you're changing your pace, batsmen can't set themselves, etc. etc. But what you are trying to do, you're trying to start the batsman's backswing early. That's basically all you're trying to do. If you can get the bat coming down before the balls are, are arrived, then the, the guy can't pick the bat back up and start again, you know. So you, you kind of you're, you're encouraging a miss hit, or he's going to hit it for one rather than trying to hit it out of the park. And so the guys who were the, the very, very best at that, they needed a couple of things. First of all was they needed exactly the same arm speed. Exactly, everything had to look exactly the same. Arm speed had to be exactly the same. The ones who were the best were not bowling, were not necessarily bowling cutters because because you can see the difference. The batsman can see the difference in, in, the, in, the, in the, the hand coming down behind the ball. So some, for somebody like Malinga, it was perfect because he just let the ball come out sort of over the top of his fingers. Nothing changed there for him. The back of the hand slower, slower ball meant that the ball, you know, the, the Jade Dernback, Steve Waugh used to bowl it back in the mid-80s. Simon O'Donnell, for goodness sake. The ball would come over revolving um, like, a, like a normal seam-up delivery. It just, you know, then would dip. So if, you, if the batsman didn't quite spot the fact that, the, you know, you could see the back of the hand rather than the front, which, which is still quite difficult. It still does people. Um, you know, that ball would work. Uh, you know, people bowling knuckle balls or stuffing the ball in the back of the hand. You had to, you had to have that split second of getting the bats, the batsman to start the downswing before he's realised that the ball hadn't quite arrived there yet. Um, and so, you know, all all of those guys were were and are. I mean, Malinga still still doing people with them now, isn't he? Um, the very very best. Um, it's, I reckon the game has been particularly tough on, on the faster bowlers, actually. So anybody that's had been able to, to, to stay out there and, and to do it for as long as, as Malinga has. I mean, he's, he's the king, isn't he? He's the absolute daddy. Um, has, has been quite extraordinary because people still, you know, he's so good that it doesn't matter if you know what's coming. He can, he can still stuff you with it. Um, and so, I, you know, the, the spinners, spinners, I always thought, in the early days that the spinners would be a damn sight more successful than, than people gave them credit for. You know, people talked about T20 being the end for, for slow bowlers. Well, in fact, it's kind of been the, it's been, it's been the making of them. 
because I mean simply because you have to hit the ball better. You have to hit the ball properly to get it to you know to clear the clear the outfield and and, and go for six. Whereas you know, if you're swinging unbelievably hard at a ball that's already travelling 85 miles an hour, you can you can go out the park whether you middle it or not. Um, and so, uh, so those those boys, you know, I, you know, feel sorry for Jade. I mean, the, the story about Jade going back when he was when he was in the England side, England desperate for a death bowler, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and he, you know, he won a couple of games. He got tagged a few times as well, and because of you know the, the perhaps the way that he looks and the brashness of him, whatever people didn't take to him but he played he played in in played for England that summer that Tom Maynard died when I cannot believe that he played I cannot believe they picked him and I cannot believe he, he they, they still put him out there in front of the world because the boy was in no in no fit state and that's those were the last matches that he played for England because he was terrible you can't run up and, and keep your nerve and hold on to you know and do all of the calculations and things that you need to do as a bowler at the death when uh, when when that sort of stuff is is going on in your life and it kind of cost him cost him his career as a as a as a white ball player for England I think. But he was yeah I mean yeah it, I, we spoke to him for the book and you know that those days at the end of his career he said, you know he said were sort of hellish. I remember his last, his very last game I think was against South Africa in Chittagong and he was asked to bowl with a wet ball and if you've got a back of hand slur ball. Bowling a wet ball, well, bowling a wet ball is not ideal. And the bloke he was bowling to was A.B. de Villiers, um, which was kind of the perfect storm or imperfect <laughs> storm in his case. Um, and yeah, he didn't come back from that. But you're right. And, and I think it's good that we brought him up because he was ahead of his time in, in many respects. And, and, you, and, you know, in terms of England, picking a death bowler, someone to do a specific job. You're right, he did get tapped sometimes, but that's because that's the nature of the role, isn't it? And then it, sometimes it's going to go really wrong. Um, but he, yeah, he, he, he was um, slightly ahead of his time and lots of guys now, um, you know, guys like AJ Ty who bought in the knuckleball. Um, there are so many different slur balls. It's quite hard to sort of pin it on one person. Um, and in terms of bowlers, another bowler as well, we've mentioned it briefly, but Jonathan Mendes was massive. Um, his carom ball, which is um, the, the word carom comes from a, a sort of, I think it's a board game in Asia where you flick a, uh, sort of disc across a board and that's essentially what Mendes does with a book with the ball he flicks it in whichever way he flicks it, it spins that way um, and he bursts onto the scene for Sri Lanka in 2006 and then lots of players copied him um, and probably have had more success Narayan's the most famous but Ashwin, Said Ajmal these are guys who dominated the format thanks to a delivery that this bloke you know, cooked up at home, really, which is kind of amazing. Um, and then one, one last player as well who needs a mention, and this is something that's coming into the game now, is, is Rashid Khan. And that's not just because of his influence on leg spin, but it's because of where he's come from. Um, T20 cricket has enabled people to be born outside of the traditional um, cricketing nations, and in his case, Afghanistan, and then go on and earn a lot of money. Um, you know, now, nowadays, you, there's sort of four or five Afghanistan spinners who get picked up in, in most drafts, which is kind of amazing. Um, you've got Sandeep Lamachane from Nepal, Ali Khan, who's from the USA. Guys who don't play for test teams are making careers out of um, their talents because of, of the T20 format. And I think, again, hard to pin it on one person, but Rashid Khan is probably the most famous player to have had such success coming from, from a region like that. Yeah, what about the left armers, Fred? What about the left arm quicks? I mean, that's kind of they've become a, a highly sought after commodity. Um, you know, Ryan Sidebottom was a, obviously a massive part of England's win in 2010. Um, you've got the the lad from Bangladesh whose name escapes me right now, Mr. Fizzer. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the every every franchise, every every county team or whatever they're all desperate to get left arm quicks Harry Gurney has, has made, made a name for himself around the world he was brilliant in the in the CPL last year um, yeah guys, guys go for money just because of the fact that they bowl with the left arm you know, yeah absolutely yeah I mean that's that's been a that's another another sort of very influential skill in the in the game of T20 cricket yeah that's pretty much the next thing I was going to ask actually so firstly because Rashid Khan I feel like if we did this in five or ten years time Hopefully there'll be like players from you know 30 countries who are getting selected, and we'll really see his influence then. But I guess the question is really what what is the next big influence and change to come? Is it is it people bowling with both arms as, we, as we've seen sort of Kamindu Mendes do from Sri Lanka, or what what is the next biggest change in play style? Well, 
I mean, that, that, that is, I can imagine, I think um, we spoke to some of his coaches actually um, for the book and, and the, the difficulty in, you know, the difficulty in being good with one arm um, is something we can probably all relate to. Um, but Kamindu Mendes can, can bowl both, which is kind of amazing. And in the age of matchups in particular, you know, bats, the captains are so keen to have the ball turning away from the bat. Um, Mendes can match up well with both right-handers and left-handers. So I think those kind of guys will be really rare. But that, in terms of sort of, yeah, innovations and, and, and influences, um, may well be the next step. And it's interesting as well that he comes from Sri Lanka. It's another player from an area where that's not going to maybe be coached out of them. If that was a kid in an under-12s you know, age group system in the UK, you wonder whether they'd be encouraged to continue to practice with both arms. Um, but in Sri Lanka, he has done. And it, yeah, it's, that's the kind of thing that might leave a lasting legacy as well. And, and you, you mentioned matchups there. And Freddie, obviously, he, he notes down the sort of candidates for each category before the podcast starts. And he was too humble to note down Crickmiz as potentially one of the format's oh. influences. But uh, really, the discourse around T20 has changed hugely from a format that people said had basically no strategy to one that has arguably viewed as the most complex of the lot. Um, in terms of the, there's all these stats going around, it's uh, an amazing level of depth that people talk about the format in. Who, who has helped that shift along, sort of inside the game as well as outside of it? Yeah, well, it's a good question, and there are various sort of characters throughout the short history of T20 who have had a, you know, an influence on the use of data in the game. I mean, one of them is, and I think this is probably more just all formats, would be Nathan Lehman, who was England's analyst, who was probably the first sort of famous analyst, if you like. Um, but uh, in the 20 sphere, uh, a guy called Venki Mysore, who um, is managing director of Kolkata Knight Riders, has had a massive influence on, on data in, in cricket. Um, he was brought in in 2010-11 to the Knight Riders, who were doing terribly in the IPL at the time, and was basically told, look, bring your, he, he was uh, from a financial background in the US, bring your sort of rigorous financial planning mindset and apply it to cricket. Um, and, and try and turn around our results. And, and he did. And, and the first thing he identified was the auction. Um, you know, spotting players who are undervalued is, is key. And he employed a guy called A.R. Shrikanth, who's their analyst. Um, and, and KKR turned their fortunes around. They won the RPL twice in four years and the Champions League. Um, and at the heart of their success was identifying players um, who other people hadn't spotted yet um, and who were cheaper than or, or and buying them for, for less money than other teams. Uh, might have spent. So, yeah, he, he was a huge character in that. And also, he's had an influence as well, actually. Now, it's important to mention on um, the sort of global brand of teams. So, the Knight Riders have now, they own a team in the CPL. They had bought a team in South Africa's league before that went bust. So, there's a bit of a, an element there of something to the future, too. Um, you wonder, I mean, Man City and football do that. They've got a team in, in uh, their owners have got a team in America and a team in Australia. Uh, you wonder how many more IPL sides will invest in, in leagues around the world and, and use those sort of leagues as a feeder system. We've seen some players, virtual have been in the CPL, um, some players from, from Trimbago Knight Riders um, get picked up by KKR. Um, and you wonder whether there'll be more crossover between teams in the future. And Venki um, has played a huge role yeah, in, in data and in that sort of quite um, forward-thinking idea around multiple team ownership, I suppose. So he's definitely a big influence. He's a good man too, Benke. Very good man, and sort of pretty forward-thinking. I mean, that's it's one of the things that that the BCCI somehow is kind of allowed by by um, by making the teams sort of owned by you know not owned by them. You know, they're they're part owned by the BCCI, but they're kind of privately owned companies. It's allowed sort of levels of innovation and um, a different thinking, I suppose that 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 it can be difficult for organisations on their own to 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 come up with. So, yeah, I mean, he's a he's a very very interesting character, um, Benki, and this idea of of sort of world domination, I suppose, of the TKR brand brand is is uh, well, it's either, depending on your point of view, it's either very exciting or very frightening. Um, <laughs> but, you know the Trinbago Night Riders are kind of you know by far and away the most sort of professional outfit in the in the in the CPL. Venki comes yeah. over, he'll come over and visit and spend a week, couple of weeks with the team, make sure that everything's running the way that he thinks it should be, and then he disappears back. You know, so yeah, he's he's, he's a pretty he's a pretty big guy. 
so and one thing before I think we come to a decision is that I guess the next thing the format might have to the next evolution it might have is sort of the resurrection of that Champions League T20 idea possibly but you wonder what will happen in that when TKR face off against KKR and uh, <laughs> how, how much that, that competition will be able to be a competition yeah. there's been a lot of talk about this coming back in the last few weeks I think um, my co-author Tim Wigmore wrote a piece about it and there are a few people who've said they quite like it to come back and I would as well as a cricket fan it'd be quite good fun but I just I can't see how it works logistically, at least at the moment anyway. Um, there are a huge amount of problems with the first incarnation of it, and I don't think enough of those issues have been solved. Um, we'd just well, be killing I mean, the, us. The, the biggest one, surely, being that you, you, there are no crowds there. You know, this is the, the biggest problem for any Champions League type um, venture is that there's, there's nobody there to watch the games. You know, and, and unless unless you allow unless you play it sort of intercountry, so that you know the the Indian teams have to travel to to you know travel who who won it last travel to Essex to go and play in front of a you know you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless, unless uh, KKR travel to Chelmsford at Chelmsford yeah. to go and to go and play against the, the champions in, in in England, then at least you'll have a packed house for that game, and then Essex are going to have to go to you know that, that's the only way it works in terms of getting getting full houses in. But if you if you have to pick a country and then have all of the teams from all over the world travel to that one country to go and to go and watch the get the matches, you're going to have empty stadiums, and that for yeah. me again you'd see. An influence, a huge influence on the game of T20 is is the public. You know, without the entire reason for T20 cricket in the first place was to get domestic cricket played in front of full houses, right? Now, by and large, wherever you look, that's what happens. And without that, the format's pointless. You know, for me, for me, the game is never ever about anything more than that. Get bums on seats in the grounds. You know, you it will be you play on TV regardless, but get bums on seats in the grounds. If you do that, then your league is, is a success. You know, you can you can talk about the the monetary side of it and who's earning what and whether or not they're viable. You know, financially going forward. But if you if you do that, then it's been successful for the game of cricket. Um, end off I, I, I don't see any other there's no, nothing more important than that for me uh, well I mean that's a really good, it's a great point because why did T20 originally start and it started out of a marketing survey of the general public they they told the ECB what they wanted and the mm. ECB then did it um, so yeah it's, that's, that's a nice point talking about T20's greatest influences perhaps we should decide the fans were because you know, in, in, in many ways everything that's everything that happens and everything that's driven um, in T20 comes from um, you know what me, what you, what uh, whoever wants you know down down the road what they want to go and watch, um, and, and it started um, with that survey, and it started with Lalit Modi looking at the crowds in India and deciding they wanted Bollywood and they wanted cricket, um, and and everything that's spun off from that, and again even now with the hundred, the ECB have decided that, again, and that was based on consumer research again. Um, that that they wanted a short game that could be fitted into the evening. That, that, that at every turn, it seems that you know we the fans are, are the ones driving change, even if it might not seem like it at times. Hmm. So I think I think the time has come for us to try and reach a decision. I mean, it would be very Time Magazine to sort of give it to the general public. They like going for their uh, <laughs> uh, their off the wall person of the years. But um, has, has anyone got someone that, that sticks out for them as as the biggest influencer on T20 cricket? No. Well, well I, 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 I think I think I've made my I've made my pitch, and it was it was the the it was it was the public uh, seriously, because I, because I, honestly I don't I, I don't see anything that is more that, that that is more important than that for the game of cricket as a whole for all formats of the game. Keep getting keep getting people into the grounds. Keep getting people to fall in love with the game for the first time, and everything else benefits from that and that and that for me is that that wins you know so yeah the, the administrators who thought it up and who put it on and have, have run all the tournaments yeah brilliant um incredible and, and i don't think that any any one player is is, is an influ can be more of an influencer than the others because the players are, are part of the product they're not they're not the drivers of it 
So I'd go with the fans for me. Yeah, I, I, I've, been, I've been won over, Butch, by that point. I mean, at the beginning, when I, before this, I sat down, I, 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 the one player that stood out for me was Doni, and that's because the players we've spoken about have been um, largely been guys who've done things on the pitch, they've created new shots or new deliveries. Doni um, was the one who stood out, but actually, I, I think this discussion has made me think about it, and I think Doni probably is more, he's probably the icon. He, he represents what has happened more than anything. Um, you know, he's a guy who won that World Cup for India. He then became the most expensive player. Chennai have been the most, or one of the most, one of the two most successful teams in the IPL. Everything that he stands for is sort of the change that T20 has wrought upon the game. But I don't think, uh, yeah, you're right. He, he, a single player can't be seen as an influence. So I, I'm more than happy to go Time Magazine and give it to the fans. <laughs> Great. That's, that's quite heartwarming. The T20 is great. It's you listening to the podcast right now. It's, uh, it's the fans, the, the people that, that, that sort of uh, make cricket worth watching and watch it. Um, great. Well, thanks, thanks, thanks Butch, for joining us. Thanks, Freddie, as always. Uh, this has been the, uh, the Great T20 podcast uh, hosted between Wisdom and Crickers. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed, please tell your friends about it. Uh, subscribe on Spotify or wherever. And if you really enjoyed it, maybe give us a nice five-star review on the app of your choice. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.